BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, March 6th, 2015, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds and our new Tumblr page, inquiringshow.tumblr.com, where you can find show notes and other tidbits. We're on Twitter at inquiringshow and on Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. This week's episode is sponsored by Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing that savings directly to you. To get $50 towards any one of their obsessively engineered mattresses, visit casper.com slash inquiringminds and use promo code inquiringminds. And this episode is also sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses brings the world's greatest professors to your fingertips. With over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and more, The Great Courses are available on digital download and streaming or DVD and CD. And for a limited time only, The Great Courses is offering our listeners 80% off the original price of one of their courses – Origins of the Human Mind. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. So in the past decade or so, there's been an explosion in research on the microbiome, the ecological community of microbial organisms that live on and in our bodies. And a lot of interesting findings have been published linking diseases like diabetes, autoimmune disorders like rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis, and even MS with modifications to the number and types of microbes that live in our guts. And some people with depression, anxiety, and even autism have been shown to have measurable differences in their their microbiomes compared with healthy controls. So an entire industry of unregulated supplements has also flourished. These are probiotics, ingestible colonies of microbes, and they now seem ubiquitous. You can find them in yogurt, of course, but also in kombucha, miso soup, soy milk, kefir, pickled vegetables, tempeh, microalgae, and even chocolate. And there are tons now of products, especially in specialty grocery stores, that advertise their probioticness. So I wanted to do a show on the microbiome for a while, and I wanted to be sure that we would separate fact from fiction, as we always do on this show. And last week, there was a catalyst. I read a blog post about a huge misuse of microbiome research. And so I wanted to talk to the blogger who wrote it. So this week, we talked to Jonathan Eisen, who is at Phylogenomics on Twitter. He's a professor of microbiology at UC Davis and the author of the Phylogenomics blog. Now, his lab is working on a bunch of cool projects, including efforts to characterize the microbiomes of rice, corn, seagrass, and even the mouths of dogs. And he's also interested in mapping out all of the known microbiota, essentially building a much more complete tree of life. So I really wanted to get to the bottom of where we are with the science of the microbiome and separate out the hype. So when I asked Jonathan about the oft-cited figure that there are 10 times more microbes on and in our bodies than actual cells, here's what he had to say. It's clear that there are, in most people, there are more microbial cells if you sum them all up on the body than if there are human cells, but it's probably more like three to one or four to one. And it's, of course, different between different people. You know, your 
most of the microbes are in your gut and how many there are in your gut differs between people and depends on what you ate and, you know, how big you are. And so it, everybody just said 10 to 1 and thought it was real. I even used this in my TED talk and I'm embarrassed about it now. I'm kind of surprised that we still don't know how many microbes there are after all these years of research. And, it, you know, I went to lunch today at a grocery store that had all of those supplements out and about uh, showing off all, all of these different ways I can replenish all of the these microbes. And uh, it, one, it, it brought up this notion, is the microbiome that fragile, which I, I'm sure you talk about with Jonathan. And uh, uh, two, really getting to the bottom of how important it is to a lot of these diseases. Like, I think he's alluding to this notion that there is so much, but we've overestimated it. And I mean, that's exactly one of the types of questions that I wanted to ask him. You know, is that is it possible that in a spoonful of yogurt, I have enough microbes to actually make any kind of a dent into my, a microbiome? Or are we talking about orders of magnitude difference? So we'll get to that. But before we get to that, I also wanted to talk about some science in the news. So I have a recital tonight, which I'm really excited about. Um, it's at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music, 8pm. It's free. I'm going to be talking about music in the brain and also performing. And so music has been on my mind this week. And uh, one article caught my eye as a result. So there is a team of psychologists at the University of Wisconsin, who have created custom music uh, compositions that are designed to appeal to cats. Uh, you, you just said that like it was a normal human sentence. Uh, there's custom music for cats. <laughs> yeah, not only that, but there is a company that creates species-specific music with a scientific basis to it. Um, and so right now, they're primarily interested in cats. Uh, and what's interesting is that the cats seem to really prefer the music that they've created to some of the best, arguably, pieces of music that have come from the human mind. Like, for example, Johann Sebastian Bach's Air on a G-string, which many of us love, or um, Gabrielle Fauré's Elegie, uh, the cats didn't seem to care very much for those particular pieces of music. But when the researchers played the songs that they had specifically composed, the cats rubbed against the music speakers I like as how if that's, they loved them. I like how that's somehow evidence. The cat rubbed its head on a speaker. And uh, this was a study conducted on 47 cats. <laughs> So let's not go overboard. And they were kind of like, you know, multi-breed cats. So they don't know if if that made any difference. But the notion of a cat rubbing against a speaker, and they they did actual statistical significant studies on on a cat rubbing its head on a speaker as proof of them responding to it, which is just hilarious to me. Uh, I'm having a hard time keeping a straight face. But at the same time, like, they are saying that this – um, might be some uh, evidence, and there's some other studies linking uh, species-specific music to this. Does this even make sense to you? Well, I think it does, because, of course, you know, what the music is really tapping into are some of the signals that the cats give to each other. So although the researchers argue that they do not play anything like bird calls or other cat calls and so, and so on, these were pieces of music that were performed by you know, human instruments and the human voice and so forth, human built instruments. Um, but, you know, they do tap into some of the rhythmic qualities of cat communication. So, you know, a cat's purr was uh, sort of used as an influence for the rhythm of the music that they composed. Let's listen to a clip of that. All right. So since we are a podcast, we are able to play some of this music for you. So this is from uh, one of the authors of the study and uh, the composers of the music, David Taillé, whose uh, website Music for Cats contains uh, these clips. And this particular clip is called Spook's Diddy. So the I don't consider that music. <laughs> but, you know, music, the definition of music varies from person to person. And, uh, you know, if I guess if the idea is, is that it's evoking an emotional response in a cat, maybe that suffices to call it music. I do like a couple findings that may not be super significant, but were interesting conclusions that they found some of the younger and middle-aged cats actually responded more 
uh, significantly to the music than the older cats, <laughs> which, you know, pretty much like if there's a correlation to my own musical history, that does that does follow since my musical interests stopped at college. Uh, and then there's also this notion that maybe this is a uh, an area that leads to us to say, Animals may want control over the music they hear because they have interests in this. So can you imagine like, you know, when you leave home, you put on a specific cat channel, like Cat Pandora. Well, there are already specific cat TV channels, you know, with like furry creatures running around and so forth. Um, but I think what's interesting to me to ask is, you know, whether this changes the the behavior of the cat to its humans you know, later on. So does, is a cat that's listened to the music that it likes all day, more affectionate, friendlier, more connected to its humans? Or does it not make any difference? Or is it just a little bit more arrogant, just like <laughs> talks about music to its cat friends in such a way that's just snooty? We'll Maybe. have to wait and find out. We'll have to see. Uh, for my science in the news segment this week, I am going in the opposite direction. I'm going to talk about surface plasmon polaritons confining electromagnetic fields. Excellent. Yeah, so this is probably the biggest news story of the week, which is that uh, scientists at the EPFL in Switzerland were actually able to image the wave particle duality of light. So in beginning physics courses, you learn about this nature that light is both a particle, uh, and we describe that as a photon, and a wave at the same time. And this work, the discovery of this work led to Einstein's Nobel Prize on the photoelectric effect. But hang on a minute. What about the double slit experiment? I mean, haven't we already seen this? No, we haven't done uh, exactly what they've done. So what they uh, did in this experiment is they shined a laser on a wire and it was this nano wire. It's very um, small. We'll put a, a video of this um, actually on our Tumblr page. And what happens when they shone the laser on it, it created a standing wave of light that was going back and forth along this this wire. And then what they did was they shined a beam of electrons adjacent to that wire, like sort of colliding with the wire. And then they had a microscope measure the change in energy of those electrons as they hit the light that was going up and down that wire. And using a, a specialized microscope, they're able to actually image those energy changes and create a picture of what that looks like. And that picture is this beautiful picture that shows a particle nature at uh, certain frequencies. And like as, as it, like it elongates out, you see sort of the wave tendencies as well. So this dual nature of light, I think, is one of those parts of physics that start to turn off certain people. So when you're studying physics, I feel like, you know, a lot of things are understandable. Newtonian physics, very easily understandable. But then when you get into some of these more spooky things like wave particle duality, I think some people find them really fascinating and they go off and continue to be aficionados of physics. And other people actually find it off-putting because they can't really grasp what, what's going on Do here. Do you find it off putting? You know, at the, it, when I initially I did, I would, you know, because I was I had a very fixed mindset as a kid. I was, you know, I, I was I was praised for the fact that I was smart. And so anything that showed me that I wasn't smart was something that I would shy away from because, you know, then it would it would show that I have limits to how smart I was. And, you know, so and and years later, you're hosting a science <laughs> podcast. I can see how that worked out. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. But, you know, I, I did. That was one of the things that made physics seem less tractable to me than, say, you know, calculus or some of the other basic basic sciences like biology, um, probably why I gravitated towards psychology. But in any case, um, I, you know, I think that now if we are able to show these images, maybe that goes away. And um, some people might find that physics is more understandable. I actually wonder if I've always wondered this, if this is really a limitation of our language around this, is that we've described it as a particle and we describe everything else in sort of the construct of of. Uh, atoms and and particle dynamics in this word particle, when this duality probably exists uh, across a lot of different spectrums uh, in in quantum mechanics, and that we just really have an inexact language to explain it. So we've sort of conditioned people to think about things as particles and atoms and physical states when it's not really that way. Well, you know, I I really firmly agree with Richard Feynman, who said that 
um, if you can't really explain something simply, you don't really understand it. And so maybe this is where we're getting to a point where we're actually starting to understand these these ideas and these concepts um, better. So we'll have a better vocabulary for it. We'll see if that happens. Okay, so with that, let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Jonathan Eisen. This episode is brought to you by lynda.com, the online learning platform with over 3,000 on-demand video courses to help you strengthen your business, technology, and creative skills. lynda.com is for problem solvers, for the curious, for people who want to make things happen. So maybe you want to master Excel, or maybe you want to become a better negotiator, you want to build a website, or boost up your Photoshop skills. So I know our producer, Adam, has been a member of lynda.com for some time, and I can certainly attest that his photography skills and all his other skills seem to have improved a lot. So even before they were sponsoring us, he swears by their courses on photography and video and production. So with a lynda.com membership, you can watch and learn from top experts who are passionate about teaching. You can stream thousands of video courses on demand and learn at your own pace. Your lynda.com membership will give you unlimited access to training on hundreds of topics for one flat fee. But right now, lynda.com is offering our listeners a free 10-day trial by going to lynda.com slash minds. So whether you're looking to become an industry expert or you're passionate about a hobby or you just want to learn something new... I want you to visit lynda.com slash minds and sign up for your free 10-day trial. That's L-Y-N-D-A dot com slash minds. This episode is also sponsored by Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. They produced an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. This is a -a one-of-a-kind new hybrid mattress that uses two technologies, latex foam and memory foam, which results in just the right sink, just the right bounce. Plus, there's a risk-free trial and return policy. You can try sleeping on a Casper for 100 days with free delivery and painless returns. They send it in a box right to your door. And to give you an idea of just how much less these are selling for, a twin-size mattress is only $500 and a king-size mattress is only $950. So to get $50 toward any one of these obsessively engineered, amazingly comfortable, and made-in-America mattresses, Visit Casper.com slash Inquiring Minds and use promo code Inquiring Minds. That's Casper.com slash Inquiring Minds, promo code Inquiring Minds. And finally, this episode is sponsored by The Great Courses. For a limited time, The Great Courses is giving our listeners a special offer of up to 80% off the series Origins of the Human Mind. And in this series, available in either video or audio formats, Professor Stephen P. Hinshaw of the University of California, Berkeley, provides a guide to the latest information and viewpoints on what neurobiologists, psychologists, and other scientists know about the human mind. So across 24 30-minute episodes, topics covered include how the brain works, the development of the mind from infancy into adulthood, from abnormal psychology, topics such as psychosis, schizophrenia, and mood disorders, and predictions of the future of human minds. So this special offer of 80% off the origins of the human mind is only valid until April 15th. So to get it, go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds, and you can find out more about this special offer or any of the 500 other series offered by The Great Courses. That's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. Jonathan Eisen, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you. Glad to be here. So in the last few years, there seems to have been an explosion of research into the microbes that we share our bodies with. And there are a lot of amazing claims that come have come about, um, some of which I find hard to believe and others which just seem mind-blowing. So I wanted to just start out with, you know, what is the truth about the microbiome as far as we know? It, you know, is it true that there are 10 times more um, bacteria and other microbes on our bodies than actual cells that belong to us? Well, there was a really good Boston Globe article about this where everybody in the field has been saying it's 10 to 1, we're outnumbered. And it turns out that that was sort of a daisy chain of misinformation. And this Boston Globe article tried to track this down. It's clear that there are, in most people, there are more microbial cells if you sum them all up on the body than if there are human cells. But it's probably more like three to one or four to one. And it's, of course, different between different people. You know, your most of the microbes are in your gut and how many there are in your gut differs between people and depends on what you ate and, you know, how big you are. And so it 
everybody just said 10 to 1 and thought it was real. I even used this in my TED talk and I'm embarrassed about it now. <laughs> so, but I, I want to actually start right there too and, and talk about how different we are from each other in terms of our microbiome and even, you know, on a given day, how different our own microbiomes are. Um, and so does that make it impossible for us to actually sequence the microbiome as some people are trying to do? No. So, so what's interesting about the area and what's also hard about it is that um, we're, we're covered in this cloud of microbes in every sort of surface, especially if they're wet or if they're filled with, you know, good food, like in the gut. There's all sorts of diverse other organisms that are there. And that's not just, you know, bacteria or other microorganisms, but there are, you know, mites on your face. And there's all sorts of other organisms that are part of our cloud. And that's, you know, really interesting. And what people didn't really know a lot of detail about this until relatively recently. And the reason we didn't know a lot of detail was it's hard to identify most of these organisms just by looking at them in a microscope. And what's changed over the last 10 years has largely been people using DNA sequencing to characterize the diversity of organisms that are in and on people. And that has opened up this whole new window into, quote, the microbiome. And it's told us a lot about who's there and about some of the commonalities between people. But it's also revealed that, you know, what's in your gut changes daily, weekly, monthly, changes during development. There are differences between people of different, you know, genetic backgrounds, different um, origins, different ages, different genders, and so on. So it's both that there are commonalities among people, and that's what we're trying to figure out, but also that there are massive differences. And so because there's so much information here, we have one of the problems of, of big data in general is that, you know, if I decided to see whether there was a link between some aspect of the microbiome and some behavior, say, choosing a particular flavor of ice cream, because there are so many possible ways in which I could study this in terms of, you know, the number of microbes that are available, it's highly likely that I would find, uh, you know, a correlation. But it's, yeah, I mean, it's almost it's almost guaranteed. Um, we call it the big number problem, right? And it, you get these false positive results where if we look at the microbiome between me and you, let's just say, and I like, you know, coffee, ice cream, and I don't know what you like, but, um, but you know, and we try and compare those variables. And even if we got 50 people and looked at their ice cream preferences or, you know, their um, disease conditions or whatever it is, um, the microbiome in each of these people, so in the gut, there are thousands of species. They differ in their relative abundance. So now we have this matrix of species by relative abundance of those species. And each species comes in tens to hundreds to thousands of different types. And so now we have this matrix with like a million possibilities. And we have two variables, health and disease, or, you know, ice cream or not. And so, yes, you're guaranteed to find things that are virtually perfectly correlated with those those variables. And that's the challenge is trying to figure out which of those correlations are biologically interesting and then, you know, which of them might have a causal connection to the property and which of them might just be some spurious connection. So should we really be looking at sort of the region of interest approach? This is a, it's a problem we face in neuroimaging all the time, because of course, the brain is very complex. And, you know, if we if we scan somebody's brain, you know, we can find a lot of these correlations that are spurious. And so what often we try to do is we pick a region of interest so that we can narrow down our, our focus. Can, can you do the same thing? Is that, is that the right direction for this kind of microbiome research? I think it's probably both. I mean, I think we still need to do the discovery part to find the regions of interest that are worth pursuing. But there are candidates for many interesting properties. So, you know, a lot of people are interested in the um, connection between microbes and weight or obesity. And there are some hypotheses about how there might be a causal connection in some cases between what microbes you have in your gut and the metabolic rate uh, that you have, how much, how, how you're able to convert food into calories, into energy. And there are specific taxa that people have hypotheses about. So just like with neuroimaging, you could focus in on those taxa 
and do a candidate test of whether or not they're connected or how they're connected to this property. But we, you know, again, there are thousands of species and we've only just recently started to work on them. So there also needs to be the big discovery um, approach where we're trying to find what are the good relationships to then test. But you can already get your microbiome sequenced by a company, right? You can, I can send, I don't even know what part of my body they would ask for, but just like 23andMe, you know, you can send a piece of some of your saliva and they'll sequence, you know, part of your genes. So, so what are they, these, these companies that, that advertise these microbiome sequences, what are they doing? Yeah. When full disclosure, I'm on the scientific advisory board of Ubiome, which is one of these companies. And there's a group called American Gut and there's a company called Second Genome. And there's many other groups that have started to offer a service kind of like 23andMe, but for the microbiome. And what um, almost all of these do is on the discovery side of things. So the way we characterize microbes, as I was mentioning before, is by looking at their DNA. And uh, what we do is we can take a sample that contains unknown microbes and we can read the DNA sequence of a particular gene in those microbes that gives us uh, information about what kind of microbe it is. But in one sort of experiment, we can read that region of this gene from all the microbes in the sample. So we go in and we don't ask, let's just look at organism 11 or, you know, the bifidobacterium or the clostridia or any specific uh, species. We just say, let's gather information about all the microbes or all the bacteria in the sample and try and get some information about their relative abundance, for example. And if you want to get more explicit or more detail, you can do genomic studies, so-called metagenomics, when you do it from an environmental sample and you randomly sequence all the DNA from the sample. And so we're not starting with a particular organism to target in most of those cases. And that's what most of these companies do. They survey everything. And then they do some bioinformatic analysis of the data and they send you back a report that says what organisms are there and maybe how you compare to, you know, American gut, how you compare to Michael Pollan's uh, gut microbes and uh, Ubiome, you know, gives you a comparison to what people have with different diets, for example. So, but there, there isn't, because we don't know enough about the microbiome, you can't really diagnose a person's, you know, problem on the basis of what kind of bacteria or, or microbes they have in them, right? So what, is there, a, other than just being interesting, um, is, there a, is there a practical purpose yet for this kind of sequencing? I mean, I think right now we're at the point where the people who are participating in this are participating in the scientific research itself, the the gathering hypotheses stage. And um, there are rare cases where if you got a certain result that would flag you for follow-up tests as being, you know, really unusual if you have an extremely high level of some particular individual species, That that's pretty rare. So most of what you would get back is you know, a slight shift in whether or not you think you might have a risk for something. It's not like the 23andMe genetic tests where there's, you know, maybe a big genome-wide association study that looked at risk and said this genotype uh, gives you a 5% increased risk of Alzheimer's. Um, Even there, there's controversy about it, right? So um, for the microbiome studies, in most cases, we're not we're not really at the point where you could assign a risk even for a particular microbial pattern. There are studies that show that um, particular microbial patterns are associated with particular health states, but there um, I haven't seen sort of statistical risk tests applied to most of those. Okay. So, I mean, it sounds like even though there's an explosion of science here, we still have a long way to go before we can, you know, start tweaking our bacteria in order to cure diseases. But I already have seen some pretty amazing claims in the media. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I wanted to turn to some of those because one of my favorite blogs is actually one part of your blog, The Tree of Life, um, in which you have the Overselling the Microbiome Awards. And some of these are really kind of 
hilarious and shocking. So one in particular caught my attention, which was the claim that um, the microbes in your mouth, which we exchange when we kiss someone, uh, could actually be an indicator of whether or not you should stick with the person. Um, And the claim goes something like this, that uh, if you uh, enjoy kissing them and that it, it, you know, gives you happiness and joy. That is a sign that you have compatible microbes. Uh, but if you find it disgusting, that's your immune system telling you not to be with this person. Am I kind of getting it right? Yeah. I mean, that's so I, I saw there was a radio show and a couple of news stories that all went through this same general idea. So there was an interesting paper that came out last year where people were very careful about their work and they, showed basically that kissing led to exchange of microbes. We know that already, but what they did that was different was they characterized this at the entire microbial ecosystem level and showed, you know, that uh, you could detect basically that people had been kissing by the shared microbiome between them. Um, they didn't go any further, really. They didn't say anything about relationship advice or, you know, whether or not you should take probiotics to maintain your relationship. And then these news stories that came out, uh, basically a person was claiming that not only did, um, the microbiome determine whether or not you were compatible, but that there was this instantaneous sort of match that was performed by the immune system. And if your microbiome was similar to someone else's, um, that that would lead to euphoria and therefore you would stay together with them. And that if you wanted to make sure you stayed together with them, you should take probiotics together, like, you know, some joint probiotic therapy. Anyway, I mean, it was, it, it, it was, um, let's just say not supported by any scientific evidence that exists in the published literature. And it runs counter to many other lines of evidence, but it was painted with this veneer of science because it was referring to, quote, the microbiome and to scientific studies. And that's why, I mean, the reason I give out this award and unfortunately give out so many of them is that a, a lot of people have gravitated to this area of the microbiome. It sounds cutting edge science, you know, we're characterizing these entire communities of organisms using DNA sequencing. And, um, and many people have taken advantage of this to make sort of outrageous claims about health benefits or other benefits that can come from some aspect of the microbiome. And, you know, this is a this is obviously a topic of great interest to a lot of people. We want to find a person that we can share our lives with. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, I you mentioned that there are a couple of these claims that came in some primarily women's magazines, um, which is kind of sad that such terrible misinformation is being published in women's magazines or any magazine in general. But in particular, you know, that you have this kind of notion that, oh, you know, keep your man by feeding him yogurt or something. It was yeah. just like outrageous. Well, well you know, it not only was I mean, so it was outrageous. What I, you know, I don't mind people making outrageous statements if they then say, look, I have no evidence for this. It's just my personal little hypothesis. But that's not what was done here. This was pretending to be backed up by scientific data. And, and so then it crosses over into this area that drives me crazy, which is, um, explicitly misrepresenting what we know about an area. And the reason I give out this award is that it really worries me that it's going to affect the field. So I think the field of microbiome studies is really exciting. And I think that the microbiome plays important roles in all sorts of health and well-being and disease-related states. But to see it get misrepresented in such a circumstance, you know, in these women's magazines or in any other type of environment where um, untruths were being told... If that then, you know, sort of if you do that all the time, people are going to start thinking that the whole field is filled with snake oil and that there's no science here and that it's not worth pursuing. And what that's what really worries me is that when people misrepresent the known what they claim to be known aspects of the microbiome, it actually damages the future scientific studies, which might actually show interesting things about the microbiome. 
Yeah, I mean, psychology has had this problem for many years, and you know, we still struggle with it. And uh, I think you're exactly right. And I think it is worth worrying about and worth the kind of work that you're doing, which is setting people straight. So to that end, um, is there anything that you've come across in, in the scientific literature that did make you kind of sit up and listen about what the microbiome, how it might affect our behavior in ways that we wouldn't have anticipated? Well, I mean, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't say the behavior part. At first, I'll tell you two examples. I mean, the thing that got me and many, many other people excited about the microbiome area was these studies by Jeff Gordon and Peter Turnbaugh and Jeff Gordon's lab where they took these um, genetically obese mice, um, mice with a mutation that led to them to be obese, they took the microbes out. They showed that the microbes in these obese mice were different than microbes in non-obese mice. They then did this amazing experiment where they took the microbes out of the obese mice, transplanted them into germ-free mice that did not have the mutation that would lead them to be obese. And they got obese due to the microbes. So they did a controlled experiment that showed that obesity could be transmitted via the microbes coming from obese mice. And that blew my mind and many other people's minds, um, and led to, in part, the large increase in funding for the entire field of microbiome studies. And what, what hasn't happened yet is a comparable sort of detailed study that has shown behavioral modifications that get transmitted in the same way as the obesity. There have been some really interesting studies mostly in mice or, or other model systems that have shown that um, things like anxiety or things, you know, sort of behavior-related phenomenon can be affected by microbes and that they, you know, there is some transmission if you take the microbes out of one circumstance and put them into germ-free mice. They seem to be able to transmit things like anxiety. It's not so that surprising, right? If you have weird microbes in your gut, um, I can imagine being pretty stressed out if you've got inflammation and that there's not surprising that this would have cascading effects. Um, what many people are looking for is more manipulation of host behavior by microbes. And for the quote microbiome, there's not a lot of great data on that yet, but there's reason to think it might happen. First of all, if you look at pathogens, we know hundreds of examples where pathogens manipulate the behavior of their host um, in all sorts of bizarre and interesting ways. So it really wouldn't be surprising to see this happening with the, quote, non-pathogenic microbes in the skin and in the gut and in other body locations. But there's not a lot of direct evidence for that yet. I think it probably will happen. It's just we're not there. Yeah, so there, like, there's the example of that I always love was just you know Toxoplasma gondii, right? Which is, um, you know, in cat feces, and apparently it makes mice docile. Yeah. <laughs> so it's this notion that, you know, the, the the cats can then in a way control their mice, and and I think you know part of the attraction of this idea is the fact that we are talking about organisms. So, and when you talk about an organism, you you start thinking about something that has a will of its own. Um, I mean, if we were just talking about proteins, I don't know that people would have the same reactions and overreactions to this idea that you know we are being controlled by our proteins, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so I, I'm an evolutionary biologist, and um, I got interested in microbial communities because I used to study um, much more single mutualistic symbionts that live inside plants and animals that contribute to the health or well-being of that plant or animal. And, you know, we know, again, hundreds of examples are mitochondria and chloroplasts and rhizobia and nitrogen-fixing plants and these other systems where the micro basically perfectly co-evolves with the host. They're transmitted maternally and they're basically one organism almost. And in those cases, people eventually get comfortable with the idea that they're, you know, both working together towards some fitness uh, endpoint, although there are conflicts that come up occasionally. Um, and with pathogens, I think people also, you know, get they understand the sort of general idea that this is an organism that's you know, its success is dependent upon transmission, for example, with the toxoplasma story or where the weird parasitic fungi that infect ants, you know, that have these great videos of the 
um, ant infections coming out of their heads. And, um, and people sort of get how that might eventually, you know, lead to success of the pathogen. And, but people get freaked out by this at the same time of saying like the microbes in our gut might be somehow manipulating our eating behavior or our, you know, whatever other behavior is out there. Um, so I, yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, people are going to have to get used to this. I think there probably will be examples of it. I don't think that it's going to be quite as clean as with the pathogens. And the reason I think that is just there, there's so many different organisms in the system. I mean, it's like a tropical rainforest and um, most of them are in relatively low abundance. They're, you know, they're not co-evolving perfectly with their hosts like some pathogens do. So I think there's just going to be less room for this type of evolutionary manipulation. There will be examples and uh, I'm waiting to see what the first ones are for like the gut commensal microbes. <laughs> so, you know, we talked about finding a mate and, you know, keeping your loved one uh, interested in you as one kind of hot topic that w- where the microbiome has been oversold. But I've also seen it being referred to in another hot topic, which is the influence of a mother's microbiome on her baby in many different ways. I mean, for one thing, you know, there's this notion that if you have a vaginal birth, you colonize the baby with the correct you know, microbes, uh, that if the mother, whatever the mother's gut uh, has also affects what the baby eats and and how his or her gut gets colonized in utero. Um, And even things like, well, you know, your entire microbiome comes from your mom because she's the one that gives you mitochondria. (laughs) Yeah. So can you like, tell me what's actually based on science and what we should just completely ignore? Well, I, uh, and actually, just as an aside, that was one of the extra sad parts of the, about the kissing microbiome story was that there was a claim that you wanted to find a match that was like your mother um, because <laughs> you were trying to match your microbiomes. Um, so, but but so what we know about humans though is actually getting to be really interesting right now. Um, vaginal birth is unquestionably a means of delivering microbes to offspring. And uh, if that is disturbed, so cesarean section, for example, um, the colonization changes. Uh, So C-section-born babies have pretty different microbes for the first year of life, at least. Although they eventually, you know, start to resemble vaginally-born microbes after some period of time. Epidemiologically, there are some risks associated with C-sections, and it's still unclear if that is due to the miscolonization of the microbes or some other feature associated with cesarean sections. You know, many babies born by C-section have other issues. And so, um, but I think in general, it you can probably say that vaginal birth is a one of the delivery mechanisms for getting microbes to offspring. And that you know, we have evolved where that is a primary means of delivering microbes early in life to to our offspring. But that sounds like such an easy fix, right? I mean, every woman who's giving birth by C-section has a vagina, right? So can't they like scrape out, you know, whatever? They, they and- do. <laughs> in in some other countries, they do exactly that. So and does it work? I, you know, I, I don't know if uh, there's enough epidemiological data to say if it shows some benefit. Um, you know, one of the things about microbiomes is that even in the cases where we know that there's some risk associated with changing the microbiome, um, we don't necessarily know if it's explicitly the change in the microbiome that is leading to that risk. So, for example, taking antibiotics leads to, especially early in life, leads to a higher risk of obesity and allergy and autoimmune diseases. And it's thought now that that might be due to disrupting the microbiome, but it's not exclusively proven. But even if it were proven, the risk is low. I mean, it is a detectable risk, um, unquestionably, but it is low. It's not like, you know, the, the risk of smoking. Um, so you need to get large numbers of people enrolled to do a study like this. So um, for C-section babies, if you wanted to seed them with microbiomes from the mother's vagina, uh, you're going to need a big population to detect any possible benefit from doing that because the putative risk is very low. 
So, um, but I think it's a reasonable model to think that breastfeeding and contact between infant and mother and vaginal birth are all things that our immune system has evolved to expect. And so if you disrupt that, uh, you're not delivering what the immune system expects. Now, that doesn't mean it's bad, right? Um, our immune system doesn't always do the right thing. Um, but I think it's pretty clear that 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 can lead that, quote, dysbiosis, that that can lead to problems. And what we don't know right now is, you know, is that individual organisms that have gone awry? Is that um, something not due to the microbiome that has gone awry, but is associated with the change in the microbiome? Is it um, the total sum of functions in the microbial community? Is it the timing of everything? Is it, you know, I, I think I would, I would conclude that it's a very reasonable model to say that disturbances in the colonization of young children are a bad idea. And, you know, we have a lot of epidemiological data about the hygiene hypothesis that the kids who are dirtier have lower risk of allergy, asthma, and autoimmune diseases. The kids that are born by C-section have higher risk. The kids that get antibiotics have higher risk. All of these things point to the microbiome as being a likely causal connection to these risks. Not proven, but very likely. So there's also a lot of uh, products now out there that involve probiotics and not just for adults. But, you know, even when I was you know, trying to buy a, a rice cereal for my baby, there's like a probiotic option. So, yeah. of course, I bought that one <laughs> because, you know, I've heard about all these great benefits. But is there any actual research out there that consuming like like how much do probiotics actually affect your microbiome? And, you know, is it always a good thing? Yeah. yeah. How, how does a person, well, how does so, a consumer navigate this? So, I mean, the first problem is what is the definition of probiotic? I mean, basically, probiotic area is not very regulated. It's regulated like herbal medicines in the United States. And so people can call basically anything probiotic. Um, the pro there basically means it's alive, not that it's helpful, right? So um, that there are microbes in the food or the baby food or the pickles or the you know, whatever it is. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean they've ever been proven to be helpful. And it doesn't really mean that there are a lot of microbes in those samples. Um, so the, the, what you see in the supermarket or the drugstore or the catalog or wherever is over riddled with ridiculous claims. And again, this is sort of the same problem with overselling the microbiome. There is good scientific literature on probiotics. Um, and there are some examples of where probiotics truly help. So a great example is necrotizing enterocolitis, this horrible um, condition that happens in particular to premature born infants where they suddenly basically get an infection in their gastrointestinal system and like 20% of the babies that get this die or something on that level. And it's very clear from the literature, at least, that probiotic can prevent this, that, that probiotic therapy for premature infants that are at a risk for necrotizing enterocolitis can be helpful. And in some countries, it's a recommended treatment. I don't think it is yet in the United States. Um, and, you know, there are other published papers on how probiotics after antibiotics can help prevent getting overrun by like clostridia infections and that certain probiotics can uh, boost the immune response in some ways. Um, but in most cases, you know, it's very, a very few health conditions that probiotics are known to help with. It's very specific probiotics, not all of the things on the market. And there are very few published papers that I know of where there are significant benefits to healthy people for taking probiotics. It's much more for at-risk populations or to prevent very specific conditions. Now, again, there's lots of great papers on probiotics. There are, um, and there's a, you know, some really good marketers of probiotics and some really good companies. But because it's unregulated, people can just say, as long as they don't make a very specific health claim, you know, boosts your immune health, boosts your baby's immune health. Um, 
they, they can say that on all those things. I've seen it. I've taken pictures at the CVS drugstore around the corner from where I live. There's a section for elderly probiotics. There's a section for men's probiotics, a section for women's probiotics, a section for babies, a section for diabetics, a section for, I mean, it, and as far as I know, there's no literature backing any of the claims. Um, so it's again, you know, probiotics can be helpful in a few cases, but if you think about it, your gut is an ecosystem. You know, like a tropical rainforest, your skin is an ecosystem, your vagina is an ecosystem, your mouth is an ecosystem, and tossing in one clone of one bacteria into that ecosystem when that clone came from like yogurt in Yemen or yogurt in Canada or wherever it came from, to think that that's going to help everybody in the population is crazy. And that's, you know, I think much more reasonable is to think about the ecosystem level picture. How can I, you know, eat the right foods? How can I um, boost my sort of microbial community in sensible ways? And, you know, if you need to fix your microbial community, you know, at some point, which, of course, we don't know cases where you need to fix it in most cases. If you need to fix it, you might want to think about introducing hundreds of species instead of one. And that's where we get to fecal transplants. <laughs> yeah, we actually have covered fecal transplants on this show before with Mary Roach, uh, who is also a big fan of yours. Um, so I don't really want to go there again at the moment, but I do want to go to a gross place to end the conversation, uh, which is into the dog's mouth, an area that you are familiar with. It's one of your own projects. Uh, so, you know, is it true that dogs' mouths are dirtier or cleaner than our mouths? And when we get licked by it, I mean, is that something, you know, again, getting back to the uh, hygiene hypothesis, I tend to let my baby be licked by any dog who will lick him as long as they're not going to bite him. Um, because I've heard that, you know, it might decrease his chances of developing allergies. So am I completely out of line here? No, well, I mean, so our the project that we're working on is focused primarily on dogs that get uh, periodontitis and other mouth problems. So it's not really about the hygiene hypothesis and how they interact with other people. But there are, you know, in the last two years in particular, um, there have been some really interesting papers on families that have dogs versus families that don't have dogs. And that the families with dogs, the kids have lower risk for many of these um, allergy, autoimmune, obesity, uh, asthma, sort of all these inflammatory related conditions that are thought to be possibly connected to the microbiome. And this is consistent with this whole hygiene hypothesis that has been around for a long time, which has been that, you know, the dirtier you are, the more the kids that ra get raised on farms, the kids that have pets, the lower the risk of these issues. And so what's new now is this model that this is connected to the microbiome in some way. And there actually was a paper that came out uh, today, or I saw it today on Twitter, that was showing that the microbiomes in houses where there are dogs are really different than the microbiomes in houses where there aren't dogs. And there was a paper last year by Susan Lynch at UCSF that showed a very similar thing. Um, and they have a model that this might be what is leading to the reduced risk. But what they don't have any information about is, is that from the dog mouth? Is that from the dog hair? Is that from the dogs going outside and bringing in dirt? Um, so I don't think you can conclude that, you know, dogs licking you or your child is the right thing to do. But I think uh, as a default, unless you have reason to think that there's a risk associated with some practice, um, I think the more exposure you have to non-pathogenic microbes, that's probably a good thing. And, and so maybe this also explains the uh, prevalence of beards now. You know, all the hipsters are wearing beards. Yeah. You wear a beard. So are you just are you just trying to keep you know the, the dirty microbes close? Yeah, I think you're <laughs> trying to keep the dirty microbes close, and that way you can sample them whenever you want to. Also, <laughs> excellent. Well, thank you very much for being on Inquiring Minds, Jonathan Eisen. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Andrea, that was a great interview with Jonathan Eisen, who's just one of my heroes for so many of his stances outside research, which we'll come to in a second. I want to go back to something he said early on uh, when you asked him about some of the testing kits. Have you gotten your microbiome uh, tested, and would you? 
I haven't. In fact, that was one of the things, you know, that I was thinking about. One of the reasons I asked him was whether this is something you know, I was trying to figure out, you know, should I, is there a particular company I should go with? I mean, you know, in terms of your genome, like 23andMe really dominated the market. But as he mentioned, there are these three companies that seem to be around for your, testing your microbiome. And, you know, it still sounds as though if you want to test your microbiome or, or sequence it and what have you, you're really contributing to research. Um, there doesn't seem to be a lot of benefit for you personally. And so, you know, it might be something that I'm interested in doing, but I'm not rushing out to do it just yet. I think I'm going to do it as an experiment for our listeners, just to post the results and share what information can be garnered. What I find interesting about the fact that there's testing kits for it isn't on the research side. I think that's a a great addition is what it represents to the market is that there's so many people out there that know what the microbiome is. I think partially due to uh, products and stores and these companies selling kits. And what I didn't walk away from from the interview was that whether or not that was actually justified. Whether the research is there for us to have this big sort of public awareness of what the microbiome is. What do, what do you think after talking to him? Well, first off, I want to say that, you know, if you're going to do that for our listeners, let's get sciencey about it. And why don't we do a couple of different trials? So, you know, because I'm, I'm Where are you going to have me swab? Well, <laughs> well, we don't need to go there. Maybe we're the same location. But what I'm wondering is how often does your microbiome change? And so let's let's do a couple of different samples, maybe three months apart or something like that, and see whether you get the same results. Oh, definitely. So that's the first thing. The second thing that, that you know, really kind of I wanted to address from what you talked about is this uh, kind of the irony that you can go to these, you know, markets like Whole Foods or organic uh, grocery stores, and you can buy a ton of probiotic ingredient, you know, things products with probiotics in them. And it seems to be something that people are really excited about. And in the same breath, a lot of these people are also afraid of genetically modified foods. And so here you have this kind of disconnect between, you know, people not wanting to eat food that we know which genes have been inserted into it, but being okay with putting microbes, organisms into their bodies that we really don't know that much about. I saw like the the yogurt infused pro, uh, with probiotics at a friend's house not so long ago, and I said, uh, "Why did you get this?" And it was very frank answers. Like I heard it helps you poop, and I was <laughs> like, and I thought about that a little bit, and I was like, "Oh, if they're kind of like close to price, maybe I'd be like, oh, that sounds healthy.'" That's the the logic and reasoning that goes into it, though, is that it sounds healthy. But what I'm saying is that, you know, yeah. we're, there's this big debate about whether or not we should be labeling foods as GM and so forth and, and you know, food labels and, and yada, yada. And I think that that's, you know, there, that's, a, that's a whole other topic for another show. But I just think it's interesting that the marketing of probiotics has been so effective as like, yes, this is good for you. These are good bacteria. You need to colonize your gut with good bacteria. It's been so effective that people don't even think about the fact that they are actually ingesting living organisms. And we don't really know that it's not regulated. We don't really know what the effects are on our bodies. And maybe there are no effects. Maybe the effects are all positive. But the fact is, is that the science is still unclear. I'm, I totally agree. I mean, it's it's sort of ridiculous. And at the same time, there's been no real work done on long-term impacts of having this in your diet as far as I can tell from like doing some uh, cursory research about this, is that there is a suspicion that it's really not doing a whole lot. Yeah, I mean that seems what John- to be what Jonathan Eisen is is you know kind of implying is that look you know you've got a lot of microbes in your gut and essentially you might be adding a few more and maybe only one kind uh, and we don't really know how that affects the rest of the colony i mean we have some ideas and there's some work that's being done and certainly there have been some studies that seem to have show some positive effects of some probiotics especially in particular conditions but you know as he mentioned most of this work is in populations of people who have a problem and the probiotics help the problem what we don't know is to what extent this is beneficial or harmful or, you know, has no effect on a person who has a healthy digestive system. I think the research question about uh, the microbiome is one of bioinformatics. This is really about how do we sequence quickly and efficiently all of the the DNA within these, uh, you know, millions, billions, perhaps trillions of microbes 
and then create communities where we can compare them over time. Like if we did this across people that are, you know, pre-type 2 diabetes, do we actually start to see some patterns developing and start being able to assess sort of um, uh, patterns of risk and how that affects sort of uh, fauna and like, you know, years down the line, we can use that to talk about treatment. I think that's the real interesting story. And I'm not sure the computational power is there yet for the amount of data they're aggregating. Well, I don't even know that we necessarily know enough about the microbes to be there. Um, so one of the things I really like about Jonathan's lab website is that he discusses all the projects that his lab is involved in. And one of the projects really caught my eye where he really talks about the fact that, you know, we seem to so far have sequenced microbes that are we know are important to us. Um, but there's a whole, you know, fauna of, of microbes that we don't know a lot about yet. And we don't know whether or not they're important to us. And so his approach is to take a tree of life approach and try to generate, you know, a catalog of all the microorganisms that are out there now, now that we have the tools to, you know, sequence their DNA and so forth. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that that's a really interesting next step instead of just looking at you know, C. difficile or, or, you know, some of these very commonly researched and known about microbes, um, you know, let's, let's try to get at a more uh, full picture of the tree of life. Uh, and then we can see, you know, where the, our microbiome fits into that. I would be remiss in not mentioning why Jonathan is one of my local scientific heroes. And I think there's three reasons why. One, um, and you didn't get to this in the interview, he is a, a big champion of open access. Um, his his brother was one of the founding members of the Public Library of Science. We often talk about articles published in, in PLOS, but he's become just a fierce advocate for that information sharing and access. And he has a great personal story that we'll link to in the Tumblr about why he became an open access champion related to him not being able to access articles when he was at the hospital. Uh, two, he's one of the leading researchers that I've heard about that wants to pay his students and his postdocs an equitable wage, I mean, as much as possible. Uh, and in talking to a couple of people that have worked in his lab, uh, that makes a huge difference because an average graduate student is uh, in a lot of these labs is making, you know, roughly $30,000 a year for a number of years. And then postdoc salaries aren't a whole lot better than that. And it's driving a lot of discussion on how to reform that entire marketplace. And then lastly, and I think my the one that I think is most important, is Jonathan's famous for uh, being a role model for women becoming more active in STEM. And famously last year, he turned down speaking at an endowed lecture because the ratio of male speakers that have given this endowed lecture in the past was 14 to 3, I believe, was the number. And so he said he wasn't going to come because they clearly hadn't made diversity an important issue in, uh, within that. An endowed lecture means they're paying you not just to travel there, they're just paying you. And it tends to be really prestigious. And so it was, I think, is incredibly courageous and quite the statement for him to do so. Yeah, no, I mean, he's, he's, he, he has a really wonderful addition to uh, science and, you know, in particular science communication. I mean, one of the things that I loved about our interview is, is just how easily and well he was able to talk about these topics. And, you know, they were a little bit sometimes a, a field of his direct research interests, um, still obviously within the field of microbiology. Um, and yet he was able to talk about them in a sort of very clear fashion. So I'm always a big fan of that. He's a good follow on Twitter. For all of our science fans at them. Phylogenomics, at Phylogenomics. So that's it for another episode, and I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. You can visit our website at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or our new Tumblr page, inquiringshow.tumblr.com. And you can find us on Twitter at inquiringshow, on Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, but please don't send us any samples of your microbiome uh, to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. And once again, this week's episode is sponsored by Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing those savings directly to you. To get $50 towards one of their obsessively engineered mattresses, visit casper.com slash inquiringminds and use promo code inquiringminds. 
And this episode is sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses brings the world's greatest professors to your fingertips. With over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and more, The Great Courses are available on digital download and streaming or DVD and CD. And for a limited time only, The Great Courses is offering our listeners 80% off the original price of one of their courses, Origins of the Human Mind. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. Inquiring Minds is produced by Lynda.com fan Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis, at Indre Vis on Twitter. And I'm Kishore Hari, at Science Quiche. See you next week. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.